you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 7 will be a kind of launching off point for us tonight. As I mentioned this morning, um, I've become increasingly concerned that we as believers uh, who are experiencing this strange culture shift uh, with such a, such a great degree of confusion uh, over what it means to be human, I've, I've been concerned that, that we aren't able to articulate for ourselves or for our children exactly what we believe. As I'll say again here in a moment, it's, it's particularly uh, among Gen Z young people where there's, there's such profound confusion over gender, sexuality, our bodies. What is a body? Do I make my own body? Is my body given to me? How does this all work? Um, there's so much confusion, and a lot of that confusion is actually within the church, uh, which means that we as parents and pastors are failing to catechize well. Uh, and so in an effort to make sure we uh, are all on the same page about what the Bible actually says, I wanted to take this opportunity in the spring in 20-minute bites, if you will, and just walk us through seven key ideas uh, about what it means to be human. And the first one's tonight, uh, namely to be human is to have a body. Well, what does that mean? We're going to see how it is from Genesis chapter 2 and explore a couple of thoughts along that line. Before we do, let's pray together. Holy Father, we do come tonight having just sung uh, your praise and reflecting that it's not I, it's not us, it's you, Lord Jesus. You are the one who has made us new. According to your Father's plan, your grace has restored our nature so that we might be truly human, perhaps for the first time. Lord, we pray now that your Spirit would be with us, that you would grant us your mercy and grace as we come to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, like many of you, I've, I'm very concerned uh, about the tsunami of gender and sexual confusion that has swept our culture. It seems like nearly every day uh, brings some new report of success from the radical LGBTQI plus agenda. But as, as concerned as I am about this for our nation and our culture, I'm, I'm far more concerned about the utter lack of, of basic biblical and theological understanding of these issues within the church. Uh, for example, in the October 2022 Christianity Today, uh, CT reported on a recent set of survey data 
that was collected by the CDC, but analyzed by uh, a Grove City College professor, which is a Christian college in Western Pennsylvania, and the professor's name was David Ayers. Um, according to his analysis, Ayers suggested that 17% of evangelical women between the ages of 17 and 45 have had sex with another woman. That nearly 10% of evangelical teenage girls identify as bisexual. That 55% of evangelical women affirm LGBT identities for others. And that's just within, of course, evangelical circles. Um, We don't have to go too far to begin to press up against the transgender question uh, that increasingly roils so many of our own families. Um, A couple of months ago, a very prominent girls' school in the Nashville area rocked their student community and their parent community when they announced that they would receive transgendered persons into the student body. They had to walk that policy back because of the blowback they received, but it was a it was a shocking thing in, the, in one of the buckles of the Bible belt in a very red state like Tennessee for that to occur. And then you go much further beyond that, and, and we are aware that the author J.K. Rowling has been canceled not because she's against gay or lesbian identities, though she affirms lesbianism, but she's been canceled because she dared question what the transgender movement meant for women and women's rights in Western culture. All of these things center, whether in evangelical circles or in the broader culture, in places like Nashville or Memphis where we have to butt up against these issues, all of these questions really center on what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be human? That seems to be the pressing question of our day. And if we as Christians don't know the answers to those questions, we can hardly expect the world around us to have any clue. So so this spring and the opportunities that I have to to speak to you on Sunday nights, I want to walk through seven key axioms or principles that might help us understand a little bit deeper the great truth that's set forth in our own Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 4, paragraph 2, God created man male and female. What does that mean? Well, we're going to explore it. And in understanding that truth, I hope we will be able to teach our children these truths and graciously help our world to affirm that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a father who has provided for us and continues to care for us, even when we might live in rebellion against him. And so so the first axiom, which to us might seem so basic, but is increasingly fraught in our world, is simply this. To be human is to have a body. That's what Genesis affirms for us here. What you have pictured in this short passage that we've read together is the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God who is almighty, forming a man from the dust of the ground. And this forming is particularly the forming of a body. The word forming here is actually an interesting Hebrew word. It's it's not the word that's used at the beginning of Genesis 1, which is a creation out of nothing. This is a different kind of making word. It suggests using prior materials and, and crafting something. 
And so one can almost picture the Lord God as a master craftsman taking the dust of the ground and shaping a human body. We'll talk a little bit more in a couple of weeks that God doesn't simply form a body. As as Genesis 2, 7 tells us, he also breathes into this body the breath of life and body and soul together is what makes us human. But don't miss this. From the very beginning, from our very creation, to be human has meant having a body. There's at least three things we can say about that, about our bodies from this passage and other places in the Bible. So three things. First, our bodies are given. They're given. Second, our bodies are a wonder. And then finally, our bodies are fragile. So our bodies are given. Our bodies are a wonder. Our bodies are fragile. First then, our bodies are given. In his small catechism, Martin Luther affirmed this, that God has given me my body and soul, my eyes and ears and all my members, my reason and my senses, and still takes care of them. I love how particular Luther is in affirming that God has made our bodies, not just our bodies, but he goes on to mention our eyes, whether they're blue or green or brown, our ears, whether they're small or medium or large, all our other members, our noses, our fingers, our toes, our legs, our arms, every part of us were made by God. They were given to us, given to me. Given to me by whom? My body was given to me by whom? Well, by God himself. To be sure, after Adam, by ordinary generation, God uses the genetics of our parents to pass on certain traits. For example, my dad has blue eyes, and and so do I. My mom has auburn hair that over the decades has not simply gone gray, it's just lost its color, and so do I. I'm basically the same height as my dad, basically have the same shoe size, but make no mistake, though God used the means of my parents to bring me into the world and used the means of your parents to bring you into the world, God is the one who gives us our bodies. The Bible affirms that elsewhere. Psalm 8 verse 5, you have made them and you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Who saw and made our bodies? God did. Who is the one who made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor? God did. Our bodies are given to us by a father who loves us. In fact, the rest of Genesis chapter 2 tells us that not only did God form the man's body from the dust of the ground, he, he actually made a beautiful world, a glorious garden, with everything needed for humans to live an embodied existence. The essence of our lives is to be corporal and sentient, to be embodied. 
Since our bodies are given to us by God, and, and to be human is to have these bodies and, and not other bodies or different kinds of bodies, how should we think about them? How should we think about these bodies that have been given to us? Well, certainly old ideas about the body being the prison house of the soul, what the old ancient Greek Stoics thought that sadly seeped into so much Christian theology. You can find the idea even in John Calvin. Uh, the old ideas about our bodies being the prison house of our soul, they can't be right because these bodies have come to us from the hand of a loving father. But, but likewise, new ideas about our bodies being our own to improve and to change, to, to desecrate or abuse, to manipulate or transform, that can't be right either. And yet that very much is the modern slash postmodern view of the human body. A recent book by a Roman Catholic uh, female writer, Abigail Favell, uh, she makes this point in her book, Genesis of Gender, that today's world wrestles with the sense of the givenness of our body. At one point, she quotes from uh, the Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the court had said in upholding the right to an abortion, uh, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And she responds, there's no sense in this statement that there is a givenness to the world to which we are accountable, that an unborn human being might exist whether we like it or not, and the fact of that existence might demand a particular ethical response from us. Gone is the ancient view that meaning exists inherently in the world and can be recognized by human beings. Gone is the understanding of a shared human flourishing that is achieved by living in accordance with our nature. Gone, in fact, is the idea of human nature altogether. The only purpose is an open-ended freedom, an endless journey of self-creation with no particular destination. One's purpose is simply to define one's purpose. She makes the point that the loss of this sense of givenness, that our bodies are given to us by God, leads us to view our bodies as something that we can use or abuse, manipulate uh, or not in order to create our own destinies. And so it's a small matter in today's world to change one's sex, to go through a gender reassignment surgery. It's a relatively small matter to simply change the way one looks to go through processes of manipulation in order to actually change our faces, our sizes, um, through all kinds of manipulative ways. But that's strange if our bodies are given, given to us by a God who cares for us and desires us to have these bodies in this world. Now, now we do need to say that at this point that unlike Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, we live on this side of the fall, which means that our bodies too, though they are given to us, they are caught up in a web of sin and decay that the fall unleashed. And so, tragically, our bodies don't come out of the womb perfectly. 
in line with the maker's original intention. Sometimes our bodies come out with club feet or cleft palates or holes in our hearts. In those places and times, God in his common grace has given us the opportunity to try to correct those maladies. And yet our bodies are still given. And because they're given, we need to think carefully about the fact that God has given us these bodies. But not only has God given us these bodies, our bodies actually are a wonder. They are wonderfully made. They are full of wonder, the psalmist tells us. We've already heard that, but there's there's others in our tradition who've articulated similar things. The, the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink observed, the body is not a prison, but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty. Have you ever thought of your body as a remarkable piece of art? As remarkable as the Mona Lisa, as remarkable as Michelangelo's David, a remarkable piece of art? John Calvin in his Institutes exclaims at one point that man is a microcosm, a miniature world being a rare specimen of divine power, wisdom, and goodness, and containing within himself wonders sufficient to occupy our minds if we're willing to employ them. And you know that's the case. Our bodies are a wonder. They are a miracle. They are an amazing piece of handiwork. Just think about our hearts for a second. This amazing muscle that powers our bodies, that circulates our blood and reoxygenates it, that beats in steady time and 4-4 and four, four with regularity. One of my favorite authors uh, recently passed away. His name was Brian Doyle, um, an essay writer, novelist, um, short story writer that lived in Oregon. And one of his essays called Heart, Heart Detecture, uh, he talks about the human heart this way. He said, consider the astounding journey your blood embarks upon as it enters the pumping station of your heart. In a healthy heart, a heart that works as it's been designed to work over many millions of years by its creative and curious and tireless and nameless, holy, wild, silent engineer, body that's been plucked and shucked of its oxygen by the body straggles back into the right atrium, the capacious, gleaming lobby of the heart. This tired blood, dusty veteran of an immense and exhausting journey, shuffles forward to and through a small circular door in the wall, a door with three symmetrical flaps, the trihupicit valve. This circular door opens into another big room, the right ventricle, but at the very instant, this ventricle is filled with capacity to, with tired blood, and the entire ventricle contracts slamming in on itself, and our tired heroes are sent flying through the pulmonary valve and thence into the pulmonary artery, which immediately branches, carrying blood to the right and left lungs, and there, in a joyous, airy country of the blood vessels of the lungs, your blood is given fresh, clean, joyous oxygen, gobs and slathers of it. Oh, sweet, delicious air, as much as those heroic blood cells can hoist abroad their tiny cellular ships, and now they resume their endless journey heading into the marshlands and swamps of the lungs, the capillary beds, which open into the small streams and creeks called venules, which are tributaries of the pulmonary veins, of which there are four, the four magic pulmonary rivers carrying your necessary elixir back to the looming holy castle of the heart, which they will enter this time through the left ventricle 
whose job is to disperse and assign the blood to the rest of the body to send it on its quest and voyage and journey to the vast, mysterious wilderness that is you. And to tell that tale of the journeys of your blood cells through the universe of you would take a billion books, each alike, each utterly different. It's amazing, your heart, your blood. And that's just one small part of you. Tell, time cannot tell of your hands and your feet and your knees and your hips, uh, the way your brain fires and causes all of those parts to work together, the way your spine connects together and it can move and shift and dance and run. Your body is a wonder. Friends, we are all pieces of art. There are no ugly people. Each one of us is a wonder a fearful miracle, a, a, a remarkable prize-winning example, exhibit of design and art. But our bodies that are such a wonder are also fragile. Because, as Genesis 2 tells us, our bodies are formed from dust. And in that regard, we have a kinship with the other living creatures Genesis 1.24, God had said, uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And so the, the beasts come from the dust, and, and so do we. And that's why our bodies are so fragile. They're made of dust, and, and they're fragile from their original design. To be human is to be fragile and to be finite. We have limits, limits of ability, limits of power, limits of energy. We have to go to sleep, at least for a few hours, in order to function properly in the rest of the time, a, a necessary limit. We have to eat daily, and we have to drink regularly. It's a limit on us that we cannot endlessly extend our energy without regular fueling. And these limits that are placed upon us aren't limits given to us because of sin. They're limits as part of our original design, that we are, because we are made of dust and we are fragile, fragile people, it's not until after the fall that we have the word of judgment that we would return to dust. In Genesis 3:19, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so after the fall, each of us has that as our destiny, having been formed from the dust, and dust beams communicated through our parents, we must return to dust once again. And so, friends, the fragility of our bodies, not simply the result of the fall, but the fall has accelerated our sense of being weak and small and fragile. Now, we know that our bodies are wasting away. We know that our bodies are jars of clay. Now, we know the reality of, of broken bones and, and decaying limbs lost eyesight and, and dimming hearing. Now we know the pain of heart disease and cancer, memory loss and dementia. 
But our bodies always were fragile. They were given to us just that way. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were to learn out of their fragility and their finitude, out of their sense of fallibility, that they were to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They were to eat the the tree of life. They were to be rewarded with spirit-driven bodies to replace these nature-driven ones. Friends, these bodies, given, wonderful, fragile, these bodies are what it means to be human. And that's why death is such a horrible judgment. Not only death returning our bodies to dust, but as I'll say again, death is the rending apart of all that it means to be human, which is body and soul together. And so death involves the tearing apart of that which God had put together, a rending asunder, if you will. And that's why the ultimate hope that we have isn't to be disembodied spirits in heaven. No, the ultimate hope, the Christian hope, is the resurrection of the body, that our perishable bodies might be made imperishable, and our nature-driven bodies might become spirit-empowered ones, our mortal bodies clothed with immortality. And we have that hope because God the Maker not only made us humans with a body, no, he took on a body as well. The Maker took on a human body. The Word became flesh, became embodied, became human. It's notable that Jesus doesn't come as an angel, as a spirit or a ghost or as a luminous appearance or a dream. No, Jesus came in a body, one that was seen with eyes and looked at, one that was touched and handled, one that that knew sleep and ate food and drank wine and went to parties. And he was raised with a body. Again, a body that was touched and seen, one that ate fish and bread, one that had nail prints that could be touched and a hole in its side that could have a hand be put into. Which means that when we think about what it means to be human, since we are made by the creator who took on our bodies, We have to start with that idea that we have been given these bodies, these works of art, and we've been given these bodies for God's glory. That's what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, it seems so basic in so many ways to consider that we've been given these bodies. And yet, Lord, it is remarkable. A gift, a grace, a wonder. And so, Lord, as we consider over the next several weeks what it means to be human, let us meditate on these bodies you've given to us. But, Lord, help us to see also that that you care for these bodies. You care for what you make, both in giving us daily bread, but also giving us sacred bread. The word of God, which is the bread of life, your very self, Jesus, but also this sign and seal, this display before us at the table, 
the body and blood of Christ. Lord, continue to teach us what it means to be human so that we might live in ways that bring you honor and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare